0: Welcome to the Burn Bag Podcast. My name is Ryan Rosenthal, being joined by Andre Ganoela.
1: Uh, Andre, what's going on? Happy Monday. Happy Monday, Ryan. Uh, what have I been doing? Well, Tom Brady did not retire, or he did retire. I'm not sure what exactly is going on with him, but the Los Angeles Rams uh, made it to the Super Bowl. I yes. guess because yes, I'm in did. Southern California, I support them because the Chargers suck because they left San Diego. But uh, other than that, Ryan, uh, it's it's a good day. It's a bit cold here in San Diego, but probably nothing like what you're having in D.C. right now.
0: No, it's it's in the 20s. I'm pretty cold, although I, I'm i a Michigander, so this really isn't much. But I think since moving to D.C., I've kind of lost some of my ability to fend off the cold. And so, um, yeah, but honestly, no complaints. It's sunny outside. The birds are slightly chirping. Uh, and we're here to talk about Russia and Ukraine, something that we're talking about. Day after day, week after week, it it seems like something's going to happen. It's always a looming sort of what if, what if. Um, but we uh, had the pleasure of speaking with former Ambassador Ian Kelly, someone that Andre and I have gotten to know very well uh, over the past about four or five years, and so it really was a pleasure talking to him. Andre, wow, it's been that long. <laughs> yeah, honestly, yeah. We we met him in college uh, when we invited him to come speak to our our student think tank at Michigan, and we've you know had this relationship since. And Ian. Um, served in the State Department for over 25 years as a foreign service officer. He was U.S. ambassador to the OSCE and then ambassador uh, to Georgia. He also directed the Office of Russia Affairs uh, at the State Department in D.C. and served all across Eastern uh, and Southern Europe. And he has since retiring uh, in 2018 been ambassador in residence at Northwestern University. Honestly, uh, Andre, this is one of my, my favorite conversations we've had. Of late, just because you and I have talked about Russia and Ukraine. And then we brought on to other people, uh, Theo Tomowski and Tyler Breeden, to talk about Russia and Ukraine. But none of us are experts. And so it was nice to have um, Ian Kelly, a true expert, someone who's lived in Russia, worked in Russia, has studied the country, its politics, its policies for much of his career. Uh, and I think some of the takeaways for me, and you'll, all of you will certainly kind of get this in the episode, is that. Ian talks about what he thinks Putin may or may not do. Of course, rightly so, he says that no one really knows; only Putin knows. Um, but we also kind of go into to NATO and why NATO is so important. Why uh, Russia sees NATO as a threat? How they've kind of concocted this idea of NATO as an arm of the United States, and but it's not. I mean, it's it's a there's thirty members, and they all have their own kind of interests, and that certainly is. Uh, been playing out as we've seen Germany and France have very different perspectives. And so, Andre, this really is like a great primer on understanding things outside of the Russia-Ukraine situation themselves, talking about international actors, the U.S. perspective, and really what we may see.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll have some more thoughts after, you know, we conclude the interview. But for now, here's Ambassador Kelly with his thoughts on Russia and Ukraine.
0: All right, so let's uh, let's begin by talking about NATO, NATO's posture, and the idea of Russia's security, because really the this conversation has kind of surrounded about whether or not Russia has legitimate security concerns here. Of course, from many in the West, we see it as illegitimate security concerns, but Russia continues to tout uh, their security concerns, and so. Before we kind of go into what Russia is demanding, I'm curious about this idea of NATO expansion in the 2000s. Of course, we know that NATO was set up as a bulwark uh, against the Soviet Union and the idea of the spread of of communism, but NATO expansion in the 2000s, was this something that essentially was seen by by Russia as a a deep threat to their security back then?
2: Well, thanks. Uh, Thanks for that question, uh, Ryan. And and, uh, yes, I think that... um There are, of course, elements of um, of the Russian elite, which from the very uh, beginning uh, have um, maintained that uh, that NATO is somehow um, an aggressive alliance that presents a threat uh, to to Russia uh, and that the alliance is really an arm of the United States. Uh, and it's the United States that is uh, pushing the um, uh, the alliance uh, further and further east um, in an attempt, really, to surround um, surround Russia. This is all the kind of terminology that you still hear from uh, from Putin and uh, from his foreign minister, in uh, in particular. And it is a uh, it is a false. Uh, a false narrative uh, about the alliance uh, and about the purpose of of the alliance, um, and you know who makes the decisions about uh, expansion. And of course, um, countries uh, ask to join and have to uh, meet certain standards uh, in, in order to join. Uh, it is not a matter of uh, the United States uh, with both hands uh, pushing the alliance up against the flanks uh, of of Russia. It is also uh, it is not an aggressive alliance. It is a it is a collective uh, defense organization, and it is also a uh, a community of values. Uh, there are you know certain democratic standards that countries have to meet in order to. Be a member of the alliance, uh, and you know those uh, those principles uh, are many many of the uh, principles that guide uh, Western democracies, such as um, civilian control of the military, um, representative uh, democracy, um, and uh, transparency of military budgets. Uh, and uh, of course, you know these are these are things that um, we don't see, of course, uh, in in Russia and uh, and other illiberal regimes. Now, when you think back to the the '90s and the initial uh, waves of enlargement, uh, there was a lot of concern at that time that um, the, the the countries that were you know newly independent and we're making the transition from communism to democracy and free market economies uh, were uh, going to be um, vulnerable to uh, to, to nationalism, uh, the kind of nationalism that we saw uh, in Yugoslavia, in in Serbia, and, and Croatia, which turned into, of course, militant nationalism. And so the thinking was that we had to really uh, knit these new countries into the community of democracies. So NATO was, um, was at that time our main multilateral mechanism to uh, try and get these countries to subsume uh, some of their uh, security sovereignty into this multilateral organization, which was uh, based on uh, democratic values like civilian control of the military, representative democracy, and transparency of, of military budgets, uh, and of course, you know, uh, Russia and particularly the unreconstructed siloviki, uh, as they call them in Russian, the the, um, uh, the 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 security officials um really uh saw nato as a as a cold war organization uh designed to contain uh, uh first the soviet union and then russia uh, and of course that narrative had some traction uh with a lot of russians you know who spent who you know had heard this narrative about nato uh, for decades, I can remember I was a student twice in the Soviet Union, and I remember all of the very, very hostile, demeaning images of NATO that I saw uh, at, uh, at at the university. Um, so uh, that's, I think, what we're what we're dealing with here is we're we're dealing with the um, exploitation of of um, inaccurate at best or or worse, false images of NATO to uh, justify um, claiming, uh, let's say, hegemony over former Soviet states. So we saw, of course, in Georgia in 2008, and we're seeing it now with Ukraine.
1: Ambassador Kelly, it's Andre Gonoveli here. Thanks for joining us. But a quick question. So since the Soviet Union dissolved, uh, we've seen the prospect of both Ukraine and Georgia joining NATO repeatedly over the past couple of decades. I I do recall there were some prospects about Ukraine joining pre-2014 and so on. So how did those prospects uh, paint Russian thinking? You sort of just gave us a bit of perspective on Russia's perspective on NATO, but how does the potential of Ukraine and Georgia how does that shape into the Russian government's thinking on this?
2: Well, I you know, you 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 see a lot of people uh in the media opining about uh, Putin wanting to recreate the Soviet Union and that that's just not accurate. He's not trying to recreate the Soviet Union. However, however, he is, I think, trying to um ensure that the countries of the former empire, both Russian and, and Soviet uh, keep an orientation towards Moscow. I don't think, you know, he doesn't want to annex Ukraine. He doesn't want to annex uh, Georgia, but he also doesn't want them to, uh, to look to the West and, and not to Moscow when it comes, as, particularly to their, to their foreign policy. Uh, so there are, uh, you know, there, there's kind of a, of, a, of a, a phantom limb syndrome going on with Putin, where he, you know, very much, he can still feel the the pain of the loss of um, uh, of these two countries. Uh, actually, you got to throw Moldova in there too. No, Moldova doesn't want to join NATO, but it does want to join the EU. And Moldova, like Ukraine and, and Georgia also has uh russian troops garrisoned on their on their territory uh against the express will of uh, of the governments there so uh he has a number of ways to uh, to to try and you know keep them from uh from joining the west the most obvious of course is occupation uh, <clears throat> so um the the um so all three of those countries uh, are occupied by Russian troops to varying degrees and um, have varying degrees of of uh, what we in the state department call protracted uh, conflicts uh, with lines of contact, trenches, barbed wire, um, uh, but not not a uh, you know an ongoing uh, shooting war. And this is all, I think you know it's 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 very obvious that it's intended to call into question. The international borders of countries that uh, that want to join the EU uh, and or uh, NATO, uh, particularly NATO, of course, um, and of course the, the it it is uh, very very difficult to bring in a country and give it uh, the Article Five protection. And of course, uh, uh, Article Five is an attack on one is an attack on all. we you bring a country in that is under occupation, that country at uh, the very next day can claim uh, that it is um, under attack or has been invaded and requests for NATO uh, assistance. And boom, we're uh, we're at war uh, with Russia. So you know Putin knows that we would never do that, um, and so these uh, these countries are are in limbo.
0: In, in, a, in a very real way. Uh, so, Ambassador, you talked about occupation, and we all I think all of our listeners know very well that Crimea was uh, invaded uh, and annexed in 2014. And then there's been this, again, protracted conflict in the Donbass region of Eastern Ukraine. And so, I want to, before we move into Russia's current mobilization, I want to talk about the war in the Donbass. And so, if you could kind of lay out for our, our audience basically how the hostilities look like today between the Ukrainian military. And these Russian-backed separatists who are essentially an extension, in, in my view, of the Russian army occupying both the, 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 the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics, which are these basically amalgams of states that are backed by the Russian government.
2: Right. Well, uh, you know, one, one reason for uh, stoking this uh, protracted conflict in the in the Donbass, of course, is what I just mentioned to uh, to show NATO members <coughs> that the international borders are... In, in flux, they're in, they're in uh, uh, contention. But I think uh, you know another if you cast back to the uh, to the, the situation in 2014, uh, the narrative of Russia at that time was that the Ukrainian government was illegitimate. Uh, and uh, you had, uh, you had senior officials even calling it fascist, uh, that it was being, uh, you know, run by neo-Nazis and uh, uh, acting under orders of uh, of the U.S. Uh, and this was all because uh, the, um, you know, the insurgents of 2013-2014 uh, on Maidan. Uh, the square of independence in in kiev uh had um uh, chased the uh the pro russian president uh yanukovych uh out of kiev that's not what happened <laughs> uh he fled the country um uh, after um after agreeing to uh, to to uh early elections you know to to, to facing the the voters uh um uh, so uh what we saw in um in Donetsk and Luhansk was uh, characterized as kind of a right, righteous um uprising by uh, ethnic russians russian speakers who did not want to come under the, uh, the thumb of the, you know, fascist Ukrainian speaking, uh, illegitimate government in Kyiv. So, um, that was the, uh, the kind of the, you know, the, the, the political justification for, uh, supporting, uh, this, uh, you know, these, these insurgents, uh, in the East and, um, so uh the Ukrainian uh Ukrainian government was able to marshal forces to to limit the um the um, the, the size of the separatist uh, region um it they control only about 7% of the uh, total Ukrainian territory so it it's not quite like uh, what happened in Georgia in 2008, where you had these two autonomous regions that were totally occupied by uh, by Russia um, via uh, an an invasion, and um, so I think you know a lot of people are wondering if if sort of the you know one of the options here with this massive force on the border of uh, Ukraine is to um, pull another. Georgia Gambit uh, and take over the rest of these two oblasts or or regions, uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, and create uh, two independent statelets, further uh, making Georgia, you know, even more unattractive uh, to anybody who wants to extend uh, NATO membership to it.
1: So, why does Russia really? support these insurgents right now? I mean, given the inherent difficulties of this whole situation, and I guess, how does Russia support them? I mean, is there some political significance to still supporting them? Are they just giving arms and weapons, or are they giving intelligence as well? What does the support look like?
2: Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. I I, I think that, you know, one, one of the reasons, besides what I've just talked about, about, uh, you know, the, inter- the international borders, calling them into question, one of the reasons is, uh one of the missions that putin has carved out for himself is um to try and address one of the greatest wrongs of the of the 20th century and that's you know what happened with the precipitous collapse in uh, 19 late 1991 of the soviet union and you suddenly had millions of russian speakers who are outside the borders of of russia itself and so this is a you know a tangible way of the protector of uh, of of the of the Russian world as they call it uh, uh you know one way for for him to show in a in a tangible way that he is supporting the the rights of um of of ethnic russians uh to um to whatever you want to call it self determination i guess uh so uh this is a uh it's a it's a real i think signal to other former soviet states too that they uh they have to be very careful how they treat uh, uh ethnic russians in their countries i think uh, uh i think kazakhstan in particular is concerned about uh this new um self proclaimed mission of putin to protect russian speakers because of the uh, large uh uh large ethnic minority in the north of kazakhstan so you know there's there's a there's also a um uh you know beyond nato there's also another i think message that uh, sort of you know uh, in, uh, an an ethnicity based message that um that putin is sending by supporting these uh, Insurgents, Um, and I, you know, I assume that he's using the same methods of support that he does in in South Ossetia and Abkhazia. Uh, We know that he keeps out any kind of uh, uh, any kind of Westerners, journalists. The OSCE monitoring mission is not allowed on that side of the border, just like they're not allowed on the other side of the border in South Ossetia and Abkhazia uh, in, uh, in in Georgia. And um, and I'm sure he's just placing his own people uh, in uh, in both political and military control uh, of of the regions. Um, You know, I I think that they I don't know how you want to characterize them, but they they politically and militarily, they're they're wholly owned subsidiaries of uh, of. Uh, putin incorporated
0: so you mentioned the osce and i want to talk uh next about the kind of the role of the international community uh in this conflict in in the Donbas region it's been occurring for over seven years and so and we've again we saw some movement some kind of some progress but of course now it's looking like we've completely reverted back to a, a potential looming offensive uh, by russia uh into ukraine and so what uh has the international community done in attempting to mediate this conflict and how would you assess that having gone?
2: Well, you know, I give, uh, I give the Biden administration really high, uh, marks for the way they've handled the diplomacy of this. And they've been particularly effective, I think in, 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 uh, in two areas, <clears throat> you know, one, <clears throat> one is, um, uh, in the area of um, diplomacy, uh, they have done a fantastic job, I think of coordinating with uh, with our allies of um, uh, of ensuring that there is unity uh, to um, you know to face down Putin and try to change his calculations of whether to invade. Uh, so that that I think has been uh, really, very well, well done. Uh, I think the other, the other part of this that they've handled really well is this whole idea of um, nothing about you without you, nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine. We, there's not going to be any kind of Yalta-type great power. Uh, Decisions about the fate of of smaller countries, and uh, <clears throat> so their messaging has been very good, and um, you know, keeping keeping to this principle of the right of all countries to to determine their own orientation, and great powers should not have serious influence, and particularly should not be able to dictate the foreign policy choices of uh, of sovereign countries.
0: I'm glad you brought up Yalta because uh, I think at the end of the day. Putin just wants to deal with the United States because he doesn't, as you mentioned, see NATO as its own kind of independent body. He sees it as an arm of the US government or maybe the CIA or what have you. And so, because the United States is not approaching this from the great power perspective, is that kind of diminishing Putin's overall goal of having the US and Russia essentially determine this from a diplomatic standpoint? And does that make the kind of NATO's hand and the Western allies' hand a bit stronger?
2: Yeah, you know, that's a a great question. Uh, And uh, I think a a perhaps underappreciated aspect of Putin's policy is just how personal he makes uh, his relations with foreign countries. And, you know, for him, uh, it, you know, one of the, the greatest insults to uh to to Russia was what he sees as the insult to him, particularly, in his um, you know, not being taken seriously, not getting the kind of respect that he thinks uh that um that he deserves. Um and he's been very open about that, you know, how he um, you know, how insulted he was by George W. Bush, that uh, Bush. Uh, moved into uh, iraq and and recognized kosovo without any consultation with him um, and uh you know kind of the same same thing with uh with the enlargement of of NATO how his his concerns were not uh taken into consideration so you know on the one hand this is a you know there's a, there's a real balancing act that the biden administration has to do on the one hand, they do not want to uh in any shape or form buy in to this idea that uh the future of Ukraine can be negotiated directly by Washington and, and Moscow. But on the other hand, you know, they know that he, uh, his decision in many ways will be based on whether or not he sees himself as being taken seriously. So, you know, that's the reason that. Uh, you know we uh, agreed to several um telephonic meetings with uh, between Biden and Putin and why we agreed to go to Geneva to uh to talk directly to uh, uh to, to Russia about their concerns uh now we haven't seen uh what what the response was the written response but from everything we hear they uh the United States did not agree uh, to the main demands of, uh, of Russia, you know, to stop NATO uh, enlargement, to withdraw NATO infrastructure and cooperation from uh, from uh, uh, Eastern Europe, um, and uh, you know, agree never to take in uh, Ukraine or, or Georgia. So it's been a a real difficult um, the diplomatic process with a lot of moving parts. Um, uh, you know, there are 30 members of NATO and, but we've been able to maintain, I think, uh, you know, a, a good kind of middle ground between, um, kind of a Yalta-like, um, uh, accommodation, uh, with an aggressive power and, um, you know, but but also, you know, not giving away the most important values and principles that we have in, in international relations.
1: So, I mean, over the course of this podcast and oftentimes in uh, general commentary on Russia, we've often talked about Vladimir Putin as if he is a dictator. But I mean, Russia isn't necessarily a top-down dictatorship, right? There are still key institutions that need buy-in. For example, the Duma, which is I mean, the Russian parliament. Uh what what do you make of the Dumas uh, upcoming recognition vote for the Donetsk and the Lunhansk uh, People's Republics in the Donbass region?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, we have to be careful not to, I think, you know, engage in hyperbole about uh, you know, autocracy, one-man rule in, in Russia. On the other hand, um, I you know, I there there is not a real Sense of any kind of collective decision making that we saw actually in the Soviet Union, uh, particularly in the last uh, 20 years or so of the Soviet Union, where decisions were taken by the Politburo. I mean, you could never call the Soviet Union democracy, um, but the General Secretary, you know, the 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 head of 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 the party, the virtual head of the country, had to uh, had to make decisions based on consensus you know we don't we don't see that necessarily in 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 russia so to a to a great degree and i think in a in a in an ever growing degree it really does come down uh, to putin i mean he has done a really extraordinary job in gathering as many powers uh, to himself that he can and uh in uh, weakening or destroying any kind of institutions of oversight. Uh, so, you know, I, I I think that you have to come down more on the side of one man uh, regime than, than, you know, uh, more of a collective regime that we saw in the Soviet Union, at least in the latter years. Uh, that's not to say that he can't take the, the opinions into his um, uh, you know his Sila uh, you know the power the power ministries they're they're important I mean these are the these are the 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 uh, structures that carry out uh, his hard power so he has to take them into consideration and also um it's you know he needs to have uh compliant, um, captains of in- industry who are called you know of course oligarchs uh, and you know of course it's it's that aspect of this that the united states and europe uh has tried to take advantage of with with uh with sanctions to try and um you know change uh putin's behavior by uh, leaning on uh the uh, the billionaires who uh, who surround him um So, you know, it's, it's, uh, I I think, you know, the real problem is that, you know, Russia is a real black box when it comes to trying figuring out a political process there. And that's, I think, you know, uh, greatly uh, due to um, Mr. Putin's uh, famous um, uh, reluctance or or unwillingness to use uh, telephones, computers. uh, We, so we don't, we don't know what they talk about. We don't know what they're uh, what they're uh, what they're thinking uh, at all
0: times. So, I, I want to flesh this out just a bit more because we we hear a lot of commentators talk about how you know the the Russian people have agency and that they can you know demonstrate to Putin that they're not okay with this. And I've again in my conversations with even some friends who look at this too, I've I've been a bit more skeptical that given his ability to just completely crush civil society, and again I think Navalny is a a perfect example that as much as the Russian people may disagree with this at the end of the day, it may not have an impact. And so, how much of, of Putin's decision making now, in, in your opinion, do you think comes down to his own personal projection of what Russia should should be, what is good for the Russian people? Because we've kind of seen this in the deterioration of Russian democracy, that he sees that their form of quote unquote a liberal democracy is good for Russia and that the Russian people Want this, even though it's been expressed by millions of Russians that that's not what they want.
2: Right. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's interesting. We we look at when Putin uh, took power in, um, you know, when he was uh, elected president uh, uh, in 2000. Almost literally the first move that he made was to move against television, against independent television. Um, And that was a, a real strategic move. Uh, he decided that he needed to, you know, to use a Soviet uh, term to control the commanding heights of of the media to be able to uh, shape uh, public opinion. And that continues to this day. I mean, um, uh, any, any uh, he allows, you know uh, some freedom, um, in uh, you know, regional media, especially newspapers, but he does not uh, really allow any kind of criticism or debate in, the, uh, in, in network uh, television. And I think that you know, how effective that is, I think is, is measured by uh, some of the opinion polls where you see tremendous support for, um, uh, for Putin, uh, in in the regions you know outside of of Moscow and St Petersburg and less support uh, in in those two cities or in places in general where there is internet penetration uh you know where they can get alternative where people can get alternative uh, views uh so I mean this is you know one one way that he's able to um, Control the narrative. Of course, another way that he's increasingly using, in, in, and very disturbingly using, is is repression. Um, using you know uh, laws to um, uh, to selectively prosecute those who dare take him on. Uh, to um, I mean to use violence against uh, against journalists who dare investigate him. Uh, people who uh, fall out of um, upper story windows are uh, gunned down are poisoned uh so um he he knows that uh his strategy of controlling uh national television is not going to be enough uh that because of the increasing penetration of the internet. Uh, of the ability of Russians to access alternative news, um, it's it's going to be difficult, if not impossible to to control the narrative. So we started to use you know outright repressive means of of um of um, uh, arresting and imprisoning uh, dissent. Um, it's things are getting you know, more and more uh, like um like it was in the in the late soviet years in terms of repression of uh, of of different points of view um i think that what putin really has to worry about is uh young people because if you look at uh, at young people they don't watch uh, channel 1 you know they don't watch uh, they don't get their news from uh, from television they get it from the internet uh and um and i think that's one reason why you're seeing more and more moves toward creating a uh, a ru net, as the as the Russians call it, uh, a, a a you know national intranet and not an internet, much like the Chinese do with the great um, the great Chinese firewall.
1: So, Ambassador, we've seen Russian mobilization taking place over the last couple of weeks. Uh, when we asked a question. Uh, Where are Russian troops? It's probably a better question to ask. Where are Russian troops not? So what do you see as the most likely scenario? Will Russia invade? Is this all bluster? Over the past couple of weeks, we've had many different predictions over the course of this podcast. Ryan, I know, has had his own predictions but some people have started to change their predictions based on actions in the last couple of weeks. I feel like more and more people now believe Russia will invade. Is, is that your thoughts as well?
2: Well, let me, let me preface what I'm about to say by saying that uh, if I had to make my living by predicting what Putin would do, I would not bankrupt a long time ago. So I uh, and I, I don't think I don't know anybody who's been able to accurately predict what Putin is going to do. And that's part, you know, partially intentional on, on the part of of, uh, of Putin he likes being, uh, uh, unpredictable to the West. Um, but, you know, having said that, um, the, I think the thing that, that Putin fears the most is the, um, the, the fear of appearing weak and the, the, the fear of, of, um, appearing that he is, um, surrendering to the West and, uh, I'm sure that you know one. Well, I'm not sure, but you know possibly one one of the um, one of his predecessors in the Kremlin. His example uh, is is probably a um, uh, you know seen by him as a kind of a counter model about what to do when confronted <clears throat> when you're in a confrontation with the West, and that's Khrushchev. You know, of course, in Khrushchev. Uh, uh, in the early 60s, um, did blink uh, in a, in a uh, confrontation with the West, with the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, and that was seen uh, by the uh, his colleagues in the Politburo as deeply embarrassing uh, to uh, to uh, Moscow's image. And a couple of years uh, later, he was gone. He was thrown out of power. So uh, I think that uh, Putin, um, I'm sure he's aware of this too, has put himself in a corner where he has to do something. I mean, you had to know we were not going to agree to, to legal guarantees against NATO enlargement. Uh, and we were not going to agree that Ukraine and NATO were not going to be able to join the alliance, nor were we going to withdraw our support for uh, the former Warsaw Pact. Countries, you know, the states that, that joined after 1997. So uh, I think it's a reasonable conclusion that he has to do something. Um, and I think that, you know, one reason why people are so concerned uh, about this buildup is it's, uh, it's multi directional. So they can invade in the north, east, south. Um, and you know potentially take over a large chunk of uh of Ukraine so the question is if we accept that he has to do something if he has to move in uh you know what what is the scale of it going to be i think i'm one of those who think the scale is not going to be large i don't think he's going to uh you know many people think he's going to move to the natural um East west border of Ukraine you know which of course is the Dnieper River um and then just claim the east as novo Russia you know new new Russia as they were calling um as they were calling it back in 2014 um I don't think he he, he wants to do that because he doesn't want uh I mean he knows he can do it and and I think we know he can uh, he can do it but taking land is one thing controlling it. Uh, is, and occupying it is another. He would need a much larger force to occupy half of Ukraine. And that's why I think, you know, possibly he, you know, I was ambassador to Georgia, so I see perhaps a lot of things uh, improperly through the Georgian prism. But what happened in 2008 is, um, you know, Russia provoked Georgia, Saakashvili rose to the bait, and, and he tried to take uh, try to take South Ossetia back. What Russia did really shocked the uh, the West in that it was a it was a large scale invasion, not only to push out Sakasvili, but also to move on, on uh, Abkhazia and move into um, Georgia proper. So I and, and and you know and of course uh, he agreed to mediation by the EU. And then he agreed to withdraw from uh, from Georgia proper, which was a great relief, of course, to the West and was a um, uh, one reason why we were not able to impose real sanctions on on Putin because of the relief. The West felt (coughs) that it was not an invasion, but a incursion. Maybe not a minor incursion, but it was an incursion. So um, that's what I think that he'll do, is um, he will punish the West for not giving in to him, uh, but he will not, I think, expose himself to a long-term occupation of, you know, of half the country.
0: I think my, my thinking is moving more and more to kind of where, where you fall, Ambassador. So I feel like I'm in good company now. Um, but you know, with the 2022 Olympics in Beijing coming up, I can't help but think back to the 2008 Olympics, where we had Russia invade Georgia. And so um, interestingly, Putin will actually be in Beijing, or he's slated to be in Beijing, so I'm not sure we'll see anything during that time. Um, but nonetheless, we also see Russia having joint exercises with Belarus in February, and Russia has said that their movement of troops and Sukhoi jets and S-400 missile defense systems. That's all in preparation for these uh, exercises, but many have said that that's a, a way, that's a path towards taking Kiev. Um, nonetheless, I think I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are about the, the Belarus Russia cooperation and maybe this larger idea of maybe uniting the Donbass region with Russia in a certain way, but also exercising even more influence over Belarus because there's again been calls for some sort of kind of joint state with a Russia with an overarching russian control.
2: Well, um you know, going back to um the whole idea of the past as prologue uh and looking at Georgia in 2008 uh a few weeks before the invasion in August in July there was a um uh, a large uh, exercise on the other side of the uh, Georgian border in the North Caucasus called uh, uh, Kafkas, uh, 2008, and uh, uh, we in the state department were concerned when we saw that those troops after the conclusion of the exercise did not go home, did not go to their, back to their bases. Uh, and that's when, uh, one of the reasons why um, President Bush sent an assistant secretary to Tbilisi to, to uh, warn uh, Warns uh about possible uh, move on them and not not to rise to to any bait, but of course he did rise to the bait. So, yeah, I mean, in in many ways, um, the the most concerning uh, location of of Russian. Uh, and Belarusian uh, troops is, is the one uh, on the Belarusian border to the north, because that's that's the closest uh, and easiest route to to Kiev. Uh, if you if you invade from Russia and only Russia, it's several hundred miles more, of course, and also you have the the, the difficulty of. Um, uh, of getting across the Dnieper River uh you know the uh Kiev is is on the uh, left-hand side of uh, uh, of the Dnieper River and the Belarusian uh the, the the troops in in Belarus can simply go right down that left bank of the um, of the Dnieper River and and take Kiev um, that's entirely possible uh, but i really doubt that they would um uh, that they would occupy kiev uh, i i think if you're looking at a more if you're looking at a realistic more maximalist scenario uh they would move uh in the east um support their brothers and donetsk and luhansk help them set up a you know new states there or uh and but the the uh, the other political goal here, and perhaps, in, or, or definitely, the more important political goal, is to um, install a uh, a pro-Russian regime in Kiev. And of course, one way to do that is to go in there, take over the government, arrest the government, I guess, or force them to flee. Uh, which would have, a, I think, you know, probably a, a kind of a satisfactory. Uh, you know, poetic bookend of what um, you know what they saw happen uh, in two thousand fourteen with Yanukovych when he fled the country. But uh, say you know we are not we have no designs on you know annexing Ukraine. We're going to withdraw, uh, but have this uh, you know much more much less aggressive peaceful government and have their own people in power. Total speculation, <laughs> uh, but. If 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 that's your your main political goal to to make sure you have a you know more accommodation this government in Kyiv, that's the way to do it. Just go in there, whack them, and install your people, and then have the West breathe a, a sigh of relief when you withdraw.
1: So why does Ukraine actually matter? I mean, we've heard a lot of political commentators nowadays. I won't say from which side but they've been uh, questioning, you know, why do we care about Ukraine and why should we get involved? Uh, What do you say to those who think we shouldn't worry about what Russia is doing to Ukraine right now?
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Andre. And uh, uh, the, I think the administration's done a good job of of explaining that. Uh, I, I think it's, You know there are there are a lot of people, a lot of very thoughtful people who think that the United States should let Europe take care of its own problems. You know why should we care more about this than the Europeans do? But this is not just a uh, a regional issue. This this you know the whole world is watching this, and you know most importantly the uh, the people in Beijing are watching this, and you know other predatory powers are looking at. How firm the United States, which is the global superpower, uh, you know, I think people in Beijing and Moscow would admit that. Uh, how, how, how firm are we going to be in um, supporting the right of countries to uh, make their own uh, security arrangements, to choose their own orientation? And, uh, you know, of course, China is interested because of, um, you know, issues like Hong Kong and Taiwan. Uh, and so, you know, our our policy is, is designed, you know, also to send a message that we are still going to you know, be the, the power that protects the uh, the, the liberal international system which is under great duress now, under great strain. Many of those strains, of course, are internal. Uh, if you look at what happened in our own country a, a year ago. Uh, so this is a much bigger issue than, than, uh, than just Ukraine.
0: That was the perfect answer. And so Ambassador Kelly, I just want to ask you one more question before we wrap up today, and it's about deterrence. So we see the prospect of sanctions and export controls and this mobilization of NATO troops. Of course, NATO has made it very clear, as has the United States, that there will be no troops going into Ukraine in a defensive role. Um, Nonetheless, what do you make of these plans for sanctions, these harsher um, financial sanctions? Are they going to be sufficient? Is the economic consequences for the Kremlin sufficient enough to deter them meaningfully? yeah that's
2: uh, you you saved the um the the most important question for last and in many ways the most difficult question but uh you know I, I think that the the uh, the short answer uh if you're talking about the 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 short term, the answer is no. I don't think that uh, economic sanctions are going to deter uh putin uh and I've laid out some of the some of the reasons why but, um uh, I, I you know I, I i think that they've already kind of built in. Sanctions being uh, imposed uh, in, into their planning. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I'm not an economist, but uh, the the size of um, the Russian sovereign wealth fund, which is their you know big uh, war chest, I guess you could call it now in this circum these circumstances, has tripled in value. So it's gone up to about two hundred billion dollars. And this is, you know, been called like a rainy day fund. Uh, these these sovereign wealth funds. This is all from oil and gas revenues, and it's because of the, um, uh, you know, the rise in uh, in uh, energy prices. So, um, you know, I, I think this is intentional that he hasn't really spent that down because he's building up this uh, rainy day fund, which can help prop up the ruble, uh, which is what you know the, the the ruble crashed in 2014 went from about 30 uh to the dollar up to about uh, 70 um <clears throat> so um i you know i'm i'm really not sure that that's going to to uh, uh to deter him it um it made these sanctions probably will weaken him uh, and that's not so much because of the sanctions themselves it's more because it will cause a uh, capital uh, outflow um and you know that will i mean you and and it will mean you know the 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 russian stock market going way down um it'll be more much more difficult uh, for you know russians to uh to to get foreign currency that's going to you know lead to um uh, to disaffection, but in, in kind of a perverse way, uh, sanctions are a political benefit for, for Putin as well. Uh, that's what we saw in 2014. That's when you saw the repression come in. And the the repression was justified by the regime to prevent, um, you know, a fifth column, as they call it, uh, prevent uh, dissidents who they portrayed as um, uh you know enemies of russia and you know pro-western and so you know one of one of the outcomes here very much regrettably will be even more repression of human rights and and uh and uh free free speech and a free press in russia
1: well ambassador on that note thank you so much for joining us here today uh we'll probably be monitoring this situation as it goes on into the next few weeks if not months uh, certainly a very concerning situation. But thank you so much for sharing your expertise on this issue.
2: Thanks, guys. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Always a pleasure to talk to thoughtful uh, foreign policy experts like yourselves.
0: And that was our episode with Ambassador Ian Kelly. Andre, one of the things that I think I'm glad that Ian kind of emphasized for all everyone listening is that the goal here is not to recreate the Soviet Union or to, you know, expand Russia's "quote unquote" empire. Rather, it is a kind of a discreet mission to say to the United States, "Get out of our neighborhood. You're not allowed to dictate what can happen on our borders." And trying to undermine the U.S. position vis-a-vis NATO. Uh, that is something that many people may disagree with, uh, but I tend to agree uh, with that that idea and that sentiment as well. And so uh really i think one of the most important takeaways from the conversation
1: well again remember russia is also starting to question u.s bases in east asia in japan and so on and remember japan geographically is right below russia they're right next door on that eastern that eastern area right so i mean i do certainly actually agree with that it's more about not really reestablishing the soviet union but more reasserting the russian presence in europe right because i mean again, and we've done many episodes on this, right, with uh, former U.S. Ambassador to Russia, John Byerly, uh, Dr. Fiona Hill, of course. Uh, I think Putin was very much affected by the fall of the Soviet Union. He was very much affected by the fall of the Soviet Union. And now, ironically, almost 30 years to the day or to the week or month since the Soviet Union fell, he's trying to kick the U.S. out of the Europe. He's trying to Replicate those results of the Soviet Union losing power, except it's for the United States now.
0: Yeah, and I think the unfortunate part of all of this, and something that Ambassador Kelly said, you and I both said, is that something has to be done here by Putin. He can't just kind of withdraw and say, "All right, you know, we've negotiated a peaceful solution. That's it." Because there are about 135,000 troops uh, around Ukraine's borders. I mean, they've completely prepared for an invasion if they were to do so, and so just a any sort of kind of pullback may be seen by the West, or not even may be seen by the West, but Russia may perceive that the West now thinks that Russia was just bluffing, it was just you know bluster, and that maybe Putin didn't actually want to or would not uh, engage in an offensive sort of campaign. And that of in their thinking may be a lose-lose. And so even if they do come to some sort of diplomatic agreement, it may still, it may be a result of some sort of incursion, whether it's the taking of Kiev, or supporting, or even more invading Eastern Ukraine. There's a lot of scenarios in which something could happen outside of a full-scale invasion of occupation of the country, uh, and so and that and that's something that uh, Ambassador Kelly discussed uh, during the conversation. And that, at least to me, is the most concerning that we can even still, even if you know there's some sort of solution. Something has to be done by Putin, most likely.
1: And I do also think the ambassador sort of noted down, you know, what, how the Russians have felt about the expansion of NATO, right? And many other sort of commentators have touched on that. I think I was watching real time with Bill Maher uh, just on Friday, and he actually had Dr. Fiona Hill on. And Bill was asking, you know, what's the point of NATO? Why do we have NATO? NATO existed to counter the Soviets. And now NATO is expanding, and Russia is feeling threatened. What's the point? And you know, Doctor Hill had a great response to that, of course. But I mean, these countries are really seeking NATO out as a security guarantee for themselves, right? It's not the U.S., it's not the United States. We're not trying to, you know, bring these countries in, but these countries are actively trying to become part of NATO, even if we don't want them to.
0: Absolutely, Andre. And of, of course, Dr. Hill has some fantastic responses to that, that such question and any such question. So I suggest uh, any of you to check out everything she said, because it, it really is brilliant. And she's absolutely worth listening to and reading. Um, but yeah, Andre, I mean, a, a lot of the conversations that we've had, and especially uh, with Ambassador Kelly, surface around why Ukraine matters, why we should be paying attention to this, just in yes, of course, it's around the world. It doesn't have direct implications for the United States, uh, but even still, right, just because, you know, we don't have a, a foreign power on our borders, uh, it's the borders of a close uh, partner an ally of the United States. And it also demonstrates to the world that the United States will uphold certain values. So again, I mean, this is something that we've, we've talked about time and time again on the podcast that what the U.S. does and does not do around the world, and of course at home, has implications for the entire world. Uh, while we are you know, not attempting to be the world's policemen, uh, we still are the strongest and most able country in the world. And that if we are to go against countries like Russia or China or Iran that have malign intent and, and engage in some terrible uh, atrocities and actions, uh, if, if not us, then who?
1: So, Ryan, yeah, I was watching this movie on Netflix. You might want to watch it called Munich, The Edge of War. And it sort of covers that whole appeasement situation that was going on when the British under Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain met with uh, Hitler and that sort of Nazi Germany uh, delegation. And it sort of looked at the process, the political process that went into those negotiations. Of course, it was dramatized and, you know, there were certain fictional liberties that were taken. But. The idea of appeasement really stood out to me, especially when we talk about how we approach Putin's Russia. Certainly, obviously, this is not the beginning of World War II. This is nothing like that, and so on, right? Like, we aren't dealing with Hitler. But I do think that idea of appeasement in in how it plays and how we respond to Russia and Russian, Russian assertion and so on... I think it bears some lessons to keep in mind, especially with how Russia views, you know, perhaps U.S. weakness on the global stage.
0: Yeah, Andre, I mean, I, I keep scrolling past that movie on Netflix, and so I, maybe I'll I'll give it a watch. Just it's a, really good, right, really good. I'll take your word. You usually have pretty good movie recommendations. And so, uh, yeah, all of done, sudden done, we're, this issue is not going anywhere, and Ambassador Kelly has some uh, great insights and perspectives on it. And so thank you all very much for listening. Uh, the... <laughs> We'll keep talking about it as long as it's relevant, and I imagine it'll stay relevant for at least the next couple months. Um, But we'll we'll leave it there. Thank you all uh, for listening to this week's edition of the Burn Bag Podcast. Uh, Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast, uh, and follow us on social media at Burn Bag Pod. Until next time, thank you.